0: John twelve thirty one. believe it or not, this is like part five or six, but part two of this morning's sermon. There are four things I've been trying to do with this text. It's a difficult text on its own, but we have the entirety of the written word of God to help us understand the words of our Lord, where he says, now the ruler of this world will be cast out, um, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I've said many times, I think what our Lord is saying is that the cause is the death of Christ. The result is judgment upon this world, ruler of this world will be cast out, and the drawing of all kinds of men, women, boys, and girls to the God-man Savior, this side of his entrance into glory. So there's this relationship between the crucifixion, the being lifted up from the earth, the death of Christ and the casting out of the ruler of this world. So I started to ask questions about that uh, this morning. And I should have grabbed my notes before because I looked I think I'm lost now. Uh, one of the things I did in seeking to answer that question, what is the relationship between the death of Christ and the casting out of the devil? I said cause and effect, number one. But then I, I said, "Okay, that seems pretty simple. Reading the text, now the now the ruler of this world shall be cast out, is related to the death of Christ. So that it's related to the death of Christ is one thing. How does the death of Christ affect the demolition, the vanquishing, the utter um, destruction?" Of the devil, that's that's another question, that how question. That's what we I sought to drill down on this morning. And um, you remember, I made this quote before my catechism. I had a catechism this morning for people that weren't here, but I quoted John Brown. It says, "It is now time." He says, "It is now time that we turn our attention to the question: How is this casting out of the prince of this world the result of our Lord's uses those three technical terms?" Penal, vicarious, expiatory death—I'll explain them. He's being lifted up from the earth. So penal, remember, refers to—it's just short for penalty. Death is the is the is the is the penalty to be suffered by virtue of the presence of guilt, which is brought on by sin. Guilt is the liability to punishment. We procure guilt by transgressing the law of God. You sin, you become guilty. Penal means a penalty for sin is death. And he said also vicarious death. That refers to the fact that our Lord's death as a penalty is in the place of others. Substitutionary death or atonement, you've heard that. And then he says, thirdly, not only penal and vicarious, but also expiatory, which refers to the fact that our Lord's penal, vicarious death takes away from others the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and ultimately the presence of sin, and the deceiver that first got us to sin, the devil. The Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. So those three terms, uh, penal, vicarious, and expiatory, I kind of rode the, those through the rest of the sermon. They're very important to remember. Penal death, that is, it is the divinely prescribed penalty for sin. The irony, though, is that he became man and assumed all the common infirmities of man, yet without sin. Why is a sinless man? suffering the penalty for sin, which brings guilt. Why is he acting publicly as if he's guilty? Well, that's where the vicarious thing comes in. It is vicarious death, that is. It is in the place of others and for their benefit. And it is an expiatory death, that is. It is the mechanism designed by God to deal once and for all with all of our guilt and sin and all the consequences arising from our guilt and sin. And one of the consequences arising from our guilt and sin is subjection to the dastardly deeds of the devil as a form of divine punishment. So this, D- Jesus is saying, I'm going to deal with the devil. I'm going to deal um, not only with your guilt and sin, but I'm going to deal with the devil as, as well through my death. And that's where the catechism came in. I'm not going to preach the whole sermon over again, by the way. But I do want to go through these questions very carefully because it leads me to where I left off. Is the devil's activity in this world connected to the divine curse? The answer, yes. Question two, how is the devil's activity in this world connected to the divine curse? Quote John Brown, subjection to the influence of the devil is one of the penal evils resulting from man's violation of the divine law. It is a part of of the execution of the curse. So part of the penalty for sin is subjection to the devil's influence. Question three, why did God execute the divine curse in the form of subjection to the influence of the devil? Answer, man, this is a quote again, man chose to obey the devil rather than God and the appropriate punishment of this sin was to deliver him into the hand of him whom he had chosen as his master. Four, what what is the cause of the prescribed punishment we call death and subjection to the devil's dastardly deeds? The cause of that is guilt brought on by sin. Question five, how can the cause of these penal inflictions, that is, death and subjection to the devil, be conquered or be overturned? The cause of these penal inflictions uh, that is, guilt brought on by sin, can only be conquered or overturned by being removed. If, if guilt brought on by sin is the cause of these penal inflictions, how do we get the penal inflictions to be dealt with or go away? we got to remove the guilt and sin. Can we remove our own guilt and sin? No. So here's the next question. Has God provided a way for guilt brought on by sin to be removed? The answer is yes, and I think this morning I said, if the answer is no, what in the world are we doing here? I said, yes, God has provided a way for guilt brought on by sin to be removed, but there's only one way. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, that's where I'm getting that one way. There's only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Next question was this, what is the one way provided by God for guilt brought on by sin to be removed from us? And the answer is, the satisfaction of Christ, another big word, but it's packed with meaning. What is the satisfaction of Christ? The answer is, the work of the incarnate Son of God in dealing with the justice of God and its rightful, holy claims upon us. Divine justice has rightful and holy claims upon us as sinners. The satisfaction of Christ is the work conducted by the incarnate Son of God to deal with that problem that we have. How does the incarnate, this is nine, how does the incarnate Son of God deal with justice, the justice of God and its rightful holy claims upon us? And the answer was, in two ways. (laughs) And of course, the next thing is, what are these two ways, right? In what two ways does the incarnate Son of God deal with the justice of God and its rightful claims upon us? And I quoted milk for little ones, the little children's catechism. Here's the answer: He kept the whole law that they could not keep, one, and suffered the punishment of their sins deserved, two. Two acts that satisfy divine justice. Well, sometimes you might say the active obedience of Christ, the passive obedience of Christ, and notice we're calling all his sufferings and and his death. We're calling it obedience. He's, 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 he's willing to obey divine justice and die. So he does two things. He keeps the whole law and he suffers the punishment uh, for us. He stands in our place. He's a vicarious substitute for us. His life reflected perfect obedience to the law. His death was also perfect obedience to the execution of the penal threats of the law. So we can't view our Lord's death by crucifixion as him becoming a hapless victim, a holy passive subject who had things done to him outside or beyond the bounds of his control. No one takes it from me. I give it up and I can take it again. Okay, so is he a victim? Well, yeah, Jews crucified him, uh, remember they said Barabbas, We want release Barabbas, that's, that's a form of suffering. Here's a righteous, sinless son of God incarnate, and they'd rather have uh, an insurrectionist released than, than the sinless one. I find no guilt in him, Pontius Pilate, or somebody said at one point at, in the trial, okay? Uh, what's his name? Oh, I forget it not Pharaoh. So our Lord's death shouldn't be viewed as a hapless, passive victim in that sense. But Peter did preach to the Jews and he said, him you have taken by lawless hands, that sounds like they sinned, have crucified and put him to death. He he was a victim of that stuff, but not wholly passive. And I quoted the text in the Gospel of John where Uh, The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for, for many. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. So this person, who is both God and man, united mysteriously in the person of the son of God. These two natures united mysteriously. According to his Divine nature has power to give up the life according to his human nature and to give, up, give back the life according to his human nature. That just sounds weird. But he said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. So this is not a hapless, passive um, Um, victim in that sense where we should go, oh, I feel so sorry for Jesus. Look, he just couldn't, he just couldn't do any better than he did. He did exactly what his father commanded him to do. He always did that which pleases his father, he claimed. That's just, even the sufferings, even uh, now my soul is troubled, without sinning he had trouble of soul according to his human nature contemplating not merely the sword thrust or the pain of crucifixion surely was a part of it but the deepest stroke that pearson was the stroke that justice gave okay it's the penal part it's the vicarious part it 's the expi- expiatory element those three things were kind of converging in his mind before he was actually on the cross, and that 's what caused him trouble yet he didn 't sin with it. Father, what should I seek? Should I ask that you remove me from this hour? take me from this hour no way i 'm not doing that for this hour have i have I come so is, it, is he a victim in one sense in another sense we have to say we have to qualify that, so he had this um Longer section here that I'm going to skip over and just tell you. I must add one more point of Christ's satisfaction. Along with our Lord's satisfaction of the law and justice of God comes a result as reward. Okay. This concept of reward for obedience, payment for a price paid is very important. His acts of obedience are meriting something Adam fell short of by sinning. In obeying our Lord is achieving something Adam did not. For all of sin to fall short of the glory of God, who's the first sinner, Adam, what did he fall short of? Glory, the state of human existence that's better than the created state. In obeying the law as man, our Lord procures righteousness for us by obedience. And this righteousness is to eternal life. Adam was not endowed with what we call eternal life at his creation. Romans 5.19, for by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In Romans 5, 1, Even so, grace might reign, watch this, through righteousness unto eternal life. That comes to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So righteousness unto an eternal life comes not through our obedience for Christ, but through Christ's obedience for us. The sin of Adam brought guilt and sin to everyone. Adam, as our public, the first public person, the person who represented the entire human race by divine design, the sin of Adam brought guilt and sin to everyone. Adam failed to fight and beat the devil in the Garden of Eden. Right? Should have been, should have been protecting the temple, the first church first dwelling place, special dwelling place of God among, on earth among men, but he didn't do that. Death comes as the threatened punishment for sin, but with that also comes subjective, subjection to the devil's penal power on the earth. The devil is given a leash to subject us to his wiles. His ugly, sinful suggestions. But our Lord does away with our guilt by taking the punishment due to it, which taking is itself a form of obedience procuring righteousness for us. That's that's worth repeating. Because I'm looking, I'm seeing faces going, sounds good, what does it mean? Our Lord does away with our guilt. Okay, guilt is brought on by sin. So it's a legal thing. We owe God. What do we owe Him? To receive the punishment due to our guilt. Our Lord does away with our guilt by taking the punishment which. Taking is itself a form of obedience. So he's, now we got to go, okay, this isn't a hapless victim. He knows what he's doing. He's positively obeying the law's threat. And it's satisfying its justice. I've Come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this act in itself is a procurement of righteousness for us. Yet also, we could add, this act of obedience is done to undo what the devil did in the garden. Through the instrumentality of the serpent, he caused our first parents to sin and therefore to procure for themselves guilt and us So our Lord took upon himself our nature, born of a woman, for the purpose of obeying in it, born under the law, and gaining the upper hand on the devil, something Adam did not do. His death marks the end of the devil's tempting him. I said this morning, I think the devil tempted our Lord way more than the Bible tells us. His death is actually the death of death as an instrument of penal infliction. Um, For us, we don't have to fear death. I mean, we shouldn't be nonchalant about death. Come on, death. Come to my door. You know, we shouldn't do that. But we, neither should we grieve or have fear like unbelievers. His death is the death of death as an instrument of penal infliction for his people. In our Lord's death, the sting of death has been taken out because he deals with our guilt and will ultimately eradicate from us all vestiges of sins ravaging effects, which includes something outside of us Attacking us, namely the devil. You remember, our Lord said, I saw Satan falling like lightning. And then he gave that parable about a about a about a a strong man uh, being plundered, being having his goods taken by somebody somebody else who was stronger than him. And who was the one stronger than the strong man? but the strongest of all, our Lord himself. So this redemptive reversal, these redemptive ironies come to play here. Death seems to be the human surrender to the reality of the threatened punishment by God, where, at, you know, when God's got your day picked for you, you can't do anything about it. Death seems to be, in one sense, a victor, a winner. Jesus turns that kind of inside out, and by obeying to the point of receiving divine justice on behalf of others, he actually beats death. He kills death. He wins life for us through death, which is a form of our mediator's obedience. Well, if you haven't been able to tell yet, the notes ended a while ago, and I'm just going to keep repeating myself over and over, and, and then my, I'll hear it on the way home. My wife will say you did it again. I don't want that to happen, but I hope you can kind of see where I'm going here. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I mentioned First Corinthians. Is it two? The cross is for one. The cross is foolishness um, to Jews and to Greeks. But one of the reasons is this. It looks like if we were there and we saw the two thieves on the outside and Jesus of Nazareth in the inside, we wouldn't be going, well, wow, penal, vicarious, thank you, expiatory Death of the Incarnate Son of God, right before it, right before us, look at isaiah fifty three coming to redemptive historical climax and termination in the Son of God. Now, if we were this side of the cross and resurrection of Christ with all the New Testament before us and the long stream of, of Christian thinkers thinking through all this stuff we, and we 're you know put back in time. We might do it only then though, but if just a casual person saw the incarnate son of God up on the cross, they wouldn't say, wow, the ruler of this world's being cast out. You can't see that happening. God has to tell us, this is the mechanism I'm using. I'm using what appears to be weakness to display my power and strength. You ever heard that before? That's Paul. What, what looks like defeat is actually victory. See how he turns things inside out? I've said this before. The serpent got to the man through the woman, and God's going to get to the serpent by a man through the woman, without a man, on his own turf. The temptations of our Lord in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 are not the only times our Lord was tempted by the devil during his the state of humiliation while he was on the earth. I think temptation of the devil was part of the reason from the Lord saying, now my soul is troubled. Contemplation of the hellish accusations and temptations and onslaughts of the wicked one in the soul, in the theater of the soul, of the incarnate son of God, between him speaking those words in John 12 and the actual uh, uh, being lifted up on the cross itself. He was contemplating what was going to take place. And between then, remember the John 14.30? I'm not going to talk to you much anymore. For the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. I, I think when I get there and preach it, I'm going to say the same basic thing. it would probably take me five-part series to say it. But could it be that the incarnate Son of God had knowledge that between his soul being troubled, recorded for us in John 12, and the death by crucifixion, that there would be more onslaughts of the wicked one, that he would try to derail him between that time. I think that's exactly what he's telling his disciples there. So he knew more attempts at derailment, try to get him to sin, like he got the first Adam to sin, try to get the last Adam to sin, to derail him from God's purpose to, uh, to redeem and remedy to redeem man and to remedy the curse. So all these, you know, it looks like power plays. We know that God is sovereign and omnipotent, and yet in the fullness of time, God sent his son. Born of a woman. Uh, What was it, Thomas Watson? He had... Straw for his pillow and cobwebs for curtains. If the manger scene is what he's talking about. Victory through humility. You ever wonder why when reading the epistles, Paul and Peter, they'll talk about that. You want to be great in the Christian life? Be nothing. There's a song, if you want to be great in God's kingdom... Learn to be the servant of all. It's right. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to ride into Jerusalem victorious on a horse with a big, whatever you call those ancient Middle Eastern or medieval things. Yeah, those things. The Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many the redemptive posture of the incarnate Son of God during the state of humiliation is what, it, it, it's how we're supposed to live. It's how, you, it's how you be like Jesus. You give yourself away. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. We pray. Help us to gain spiritual n- nutrients from this meditation.